Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find out about the Creative Writer's Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt podcast, and it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to episode 128 of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt. In this episode, I bring you my latest conversation with the science fiction author and international speaker, Derek Kunzgen. And I say latest because this will be the third time I have spoken to Derek. The first time being four years ago, 2014, when he was successfully selling short stories to the best science fiction magazines around. Now Derek has an agent, a two-book deal signed. He is published in multiple territories and languages and is in negotiation to sign more deals for his work. His first novel, The Quantum Magician, has just been published by Rebellion and is now available in bookstores and online. It's been fascinating to see Derek's career develop over time and in this conversation we talk about the key differences between writing a novel and short stories, using specific senses with different characters and Derek confesses to hitting the strunk and white cool aid, his words not mine. I had a fascinating conversation with Derek, I hope you enjoy it, here it is. So, Derek, it's a real pleasure to have you on the Creative Writers Tool Belt podcast again. Uh, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. I love your podcast. And I love having you as a guest. So uh, it's it's good to have you back with us. So I want to start just by giving you a chance to introduce yourself. Some people will have heard you speak before and will know a little bit about your background. Other people won't. So perhaps you could start by just telling us a little bit about you growing up cultural influences on your life as a kid that kind of stuff well this is a neat question andy i you know i rarely think about being a child and what sort of influences but Mm. i'm canadian as many people know i have three cultures i grew up with because my father is a german immigrant my mother is from quebec and i grew up in english canada and so um i never thought about it in terms of writing but in fact the quebecois gets into my writing now Mm. and i think I think the biggest thing was, like, if we're talking about what influenced me and my writing taste and development was the stuff that came from the English culture, the Saturday morning cartoons with Superman and Batman and Spider-Man and Flash Gordon and Tarzan. When I was about six or seven, Star Wars came out and, you know, Star Wars Return Mm. of the Jedi, Battlestar Galactica and... When I was about 10, I discovered comic books, and that was a giant turning point in in the sorts of things I was putting into my head. And finally, comic books led me to Edgar Rice Burroughs. And so I read John Carter of Mars and Tarzan, and eventually I got to Asimov and Tolkien and Robert Holdstock and all the good people. But yeah, there was a lot of science fiction and fantasy and superheroics in my imagination from about the time I was six to the time I was 25. And you you started your writing journey, I think I'm right in saying this, through short stories. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your approach to writing short stories and also whether you think writing short stories prepared you to write your novel. So I didn't come to short stories naturally. I had read novels or comic books. And sure. so neither one was good preparation for writing short stories. 
But I had written two failed novels by the time I was 30 and failed in the sense that they weren't going to get published at a big press. And in science fiction, short fiction is very much open to newcomers. And so I spent three or four years just reading, 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 and trying to write my own stories as well. And eventually, by the time I was 35, I had my first sale and things started taking off from there. As far as it teaching me the craft, I think it certainly did. Uh, there are lots of things I learned on the, you know, the line level, the paragraph level, the mm-hmm. scene level, and so on that I learned from short fiction that I was later on able to take into novels, although the overlap is not perfect. There are some things you need to do in novels that you don't need to do so much in short stories. Sure. And- okay. So I mean, you've kind of just given us a couple of little bits of information there reflecting your strategy with short stories. So I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit for us. How, what, what was your thinking with, with going for short stories and how, how did you find the markets that you eventually sold into? So I figured that if I write short stories and I get rejected by the professional markets, but I can get into the semi-pro markets, mm. that would sort of tell me where I was as a writer. That's not a perfect litmus test, obviously, because you can write something that is really good and there's just not a market for it, or you're sending it to the wrong market. So it's not a perfect test, but that's the way I was using it. And uh, I figured that once I hit the big time, let's say a major market, that would be my signal that I could go back to writing novels with the confidence that I have the chops. And that's a bit laughable because like looking <laughs> back at my, my naivete now, because um, – The second sale I made was to Asimov's magazine, which is arguably one of the top magazines of science fiction in the world. And so getting in there was amazing. And so I immediately said, I've made the big time. Now I'm going to write my novel. And I wasn't able to get back into Asimov's for another four years because I figure I unconsciously or, or without completely understanding why wrote a good enough story to get in but not good enough that I could replicate what I'd done. It took me another three or four years before I I could do Mm. it without fluking into it. And in science fiction, there are, like I said, a lot of markets. There's a a website called Ralan.com, so R-A-L-A-N.com, and that guy tracks markets for science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and anthologies, by professional pay, semi-professional pay, okay, token pay, no yeah. pay. Yeah. And so I like that one a lot until I figured out that basically my stuff resonated in Asimov's and they just kept buying my stuff. And then I stopped looking for other markets because if you've got an editor who likes your work, it, it makes it easier to do everything. Yeah. Yeah. So does that mean that you, you built up an understanding of what that person wants and that then informed... Not necessarily the tiny details in the story, but it gave you a bit of a clue as to how the how the thing should feel, how it should flow. Well, I'm not sure if I tuned myself sort of on the radio dial to Asimov's. I think it's more a process of you write something and that you care about that you know means something to you that you would like to read, and then you try and find the market that exists for that. Okay. Um, And so in my case, I was not able to get into analog for a long time. While Stanley Schmidt was the editor, I never wrote a story that was sufficiently focused on science to get in. 
since the new editor's been there, though, they've you know they they bought one of my stories and mm. and that was my way in. And I almost made a sale as well to Fantasy NSF that didn't go through because they had just run a story that was superficially similar to mine. And okay. so in the end, I I sold it to Asimov's anyway. But that goes to show that once you get to a certain level, there are several markets that any given story could fit into. And and so sometimes you play market bingo because you want to build <laughs> up a little bit your bio and say, well, I've been published here and here and here. And uh, I still haven't been published in FNSF, though. So eventually I'd like to get into there. Yeah, sure, sure. So it sounds as if actually it's, it's more a case of you've really got to believe in the writing that you're producing you're not writing to a particular market. You write something that you believe in and that you feel really does have value, and then you look for the market for it. Yeah, I think so. And and a okay. place like Relan helps because uh, I, I've I've written to themed anthologies before. So say I've I've written a few times, and and there was one on resource wars of the future that I wrote mm. for, and in the end, I didn't write a story like all the other stories in there. I actually wrote against the the tone I felt that would probably be through most of the anthology. Mm-hmm. And in the end, they turn into Derek stories anyway. No matter what I do with my work, in the end, <laughs> yeah. they turn into Derek stories. Yeah. And people yeah. on the outside say, those are Derek stories. Mm. Okay. Now, when we first spoke, which was about four years ago, I think you had just begun to pick up some opportunities in China. And that has developed for you over the recent years. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how that has happened. How has your association with China developed and what's been what's been going on there for you as a writer? I should probably start with it's, you know, I think it's just dumb luck, but I, I don't think <laughs> it's that 100%. No. I, I was very lucky. So in 2014, what happened was I, I visited China just as a tourist and I had hoped to meet the people from SF World and that never happened. And then, ironically enough, when I came home, there was an email two weeks later waiting for me saying, we just read this story in Asimov's. We'd like to publish it. Can we buy the Chinese rights? Mm. And they really seem to like my stories that have to do with space opera and hard science fiction. They seem to have a very large thirst for science fiction that is concerned with the science and adventure and sort of classical uplifting sort of stuff. That's what I've been selling them, although I've sold them some darker stories too that are equally concerned with science. They are Mm. much, much less concerned with my fantasy. And yeah, I just started selling more and more to them. And then after about a year, they asked me, have you got a novel? And I said, well, I'm writing one, but I don't have an agent and I don't have a publisher yet, so I'm just going to hold off. Sure. Yeah, that was that was pretty exciting to have that level of interest. Yeah. And then last year, all of a sudden, I started visiting a whole lot. I think I had in the last twelve months five visits to China as yeah. an author. You do seem and to have been over there quite a lot, don't you? On recently? the first, yeah, yeah. So the first time was last October, I think, or November. And I was invited over as a guest of honor at the International Science Fiction Conference in Chengdu, which is their science fiction capital. And I don't know if you know uh, Liu Cixin, 
who is the guy who wrote Three Body Problem, yes, well, and that's uh, yeah, been translated work, all over yeah. the world. And he yeah. So my program item was to go up on stage, just me and him, and to interview him. And they had me pitch um, my novel to producers and directors. I was on other panels as well. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. It was my first guest, guest of honor anywhere. Yeah. About two weeks later, I went back again with my other publisher, who publishes pretty much only my short fiction, and they showed me and five other Western authors and I think three or four Chinese authors around a high-tech company that's a little bit like Microsoft and, and others. It's like it's a high-tech company. Mm. And they had us just – they showed us their tech and what they're trying to do and what they're going to do in the future. And they were looking to have us inspired to write novelettes that would then be published by the publisher that flew us over. Okay. So I did that and, in fact – that story is now coming out in Asimov's because I also sold it there. Mm. Um, that's coming out next week, which would be cool. yeah, start of November. And then in May, they had me come back again to teach a course to Chinese authors on how to write SF. Mm -hmm. And I also was at a conference. And then I was at another one of those show you around and write something for it. And then in the last month, my publisher invited me to Beijing to speak at the national or sorry at the international science literacy conference on the topic of how science fiction can contribute to science literacy hmm. so it it's it's astonishing to me that you know all these invitations are coming my way but i've decided well while it's here i'll ride the, the wave and Absolutely, when it's yeah. done I'm not yeah. going to be sad about it I'm just going to say it was a wonderful it was a wonderful ride because sure. if China had preferred stories sort of based on Buffy the Vampire Slayer sort of stuff then you know I never would have gotten over there but it happens that they like hard SF so it, it it sounds from what you're saying as if the appetite in China is for fairly hard science based SF space opera, a bit of adventure, more classically based tales. So it, it's kind of classic good fiction, I suppose. Is that is that about right? Yeah, yeah. I think they want it well written, obviously. Course, but yeah. uh, the, the editors I've spoken to are interested in more of the classic feel of, of sci-fi. And uh, Sheila Williams of Asimov's once described me as writing adventure SF. And when she said it, I felt kind of crestfallen, you know, as an artist. <laughs> but, you know, it's a subgenre, you know, it's, 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 it's what I write and maybe it's just I hadn't been self-reflective enough mm. to realize that okay what I enjoy is is adventure SF uh, so I want to come on to talk to you now about your novel and so your first novel the quantum magician so it is out just in the last couple of weeks or so do you want to tell us a little bit about the novel first of all a kind of spoiler free overview of what's going on with it sure so I told my agent to be that it's oceans 11 meets guardians of the galaxy <laughs> she described it to the publisher as oceans oceans 11 in space my publisher describes it as oceans 11 written by ian banks and i just found out my french publisher describes it as peter watts on laughing gas <laughs> so there's there's a bunch of different takes on it, but yeah, it's obviously a heist novel, and mm. heist stories are a lot of fun. I mean, if you've seen The Sting or Ocean's Eight or whatever, The Professional, there's tons of stories out there that are just a lot of fun, and it's a great place to mix in scientific ideas. Yes. But in the end, a story like a heist is just the sort of scaffolding. In the end, people are coming not for the scaffolding, they're coming for both the characters and then 
the guts of what the story is about. And mm-hmm. in this case, the guts of the story is about what happens to humanity when we're able to engineer our children. The stars of the story are the various subspecies of humanity and their different problems and mm-hmm. advantages mm-hmm. in the future. And it's also a novel about what happens when humanity goes into space and there's no police out there and where politics is still might makes right. And lastly, it's it's a novel where I could just let my wildest science fiction ideas run loose, biological mm. quantum computing, the sort of implications of 11-dimensional space and wormholes and playing with time travel and biologically engineered religion. So I, I hope people pick it up and read the back jacket because they're like, oh, it's a heist book. But in the end, the experience of the read is about the characters and and what's inside mm. them and, and also mm. about what this book could say about the future. So I want to talk a little bit further in a moment about aspects of the novel, but it, I thought it'd be useful for us all just to get a kind of idea of the timeline for this thing. Um, so I wonder if you could just tell us about when you when you had an, the idea, first ideas for the book, when you wrote it, when you pitched it to an agent and then it got to a publisher all the way up to publication. So like the English language publication is in October, 2018. What's the, what's the history of this book? It's so long. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I started collecting the ideas for the story in the summer of 2014. I had decided then that I was going to write a space opera novel, much like my fiction that had appeared in Asimov and analog. So I wrote it probably from about the fall of 2014 to the summer of 2015 using an hour before work every day. Mm. In May of 2015, when I was close to done, I happened to meet my agent-to-be at a conference and I told her, you know, I can have it ready for you to see in maybe four months. Four months later, she took me as a client and then we spent six months working together on it, which involved four or three more drafts. And then finally, in April 2016, she submitted it to different publishers in Waves. And Mm. by July, Solaris Books in the UK made an offer. And we ended up signing a two-book deal in the fall of 2016 of that year with a release date of now. So even when we signed it, they were planning, okay, it'll be in two years that we do it. Wow, yeah. Once that contract was done, we sent it off to Analog Magazine because I had a feeling that they might be interested in serializing it. And I also sent it to SF, we sent it to SF World in China and it sold to both Analog and SF World. And then Analog, in fact, suggested some additions and I ended up writing another 6,000 words of a subplot that I think strengthened the novel quite a bit. Then in early 2017, we started getting art for the Solaris edition. We discussed marketing strategy. In late 2017, it started serializing in both Chinese and in English. Just this last April in 2018, the French rights sold to Albin Michel in France. And at the same time, the ARCs were ready. Those got sent out to blurbers. And those are the people who who are the famous people you send it to. And hopefully, if they say something nice about your book, if they read it, those things get put on the cover. And so marketing was getting into high gear there. And then sometime in May or June, I think, the audio rights to the two books sold to recorded books. And then in June, while I was there, the Chinese book version was launched. Mm-hmm. And then now uh, English just, just happened. Wow. So it's, it is really long. It's like four years from beginning to the point mm. where I'm actually signing some for fans. 
I, I had a chat with my publisher in at Worldcon, and I said because I'd seen other writer friends work on much different schedules. Like, let's say their books came out every six months or something, and yeah. I said, would that be something you would want to do? And they said, in fact, no, because they said it's a peculiarity that I believe Barnes and Noble needs about a year of advance to to buy stuff. So wow. The books they're putting on the shelves this October, they bought last October. And so if that's the case, that's fine. And then also they told me that they were trying to do something special in terms of marketing with my book. And so they wanted a six-month lead time at least Mm. on prepping for marketing Mm. and getting all that stuff done. So in the end, it comes out as fast as it comes out. And I just have to be patient. (laughs) And have you had to exercise a bit of patience waiting for this thing to come out? I I guess you probably have a little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wanted this book out. I wanted a book out when I was 25 years old. So, (laughs) you know, we missed that boat. (laughs) (laughs) I want to pick up on one of the things you said in that timeline there. You said that your agent worked with you for six months on the book. And I couldn't help thinking, wow, that's that's the kind of agent everybody wants, really. They want everybody wants an agent that really can bring something to the book. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that stage of the process, the work that you did with her? So her acceptance letter to me was, Derek, I love the book. I'd like to offer you representation. I would like to work with you on it to make it unputdownable. And I thought that was an amazing goal. And my agent has really good structural instincts. Mm. So, you know, there are subplots that faded in and out and she's like, these need to be clarified. And then at one point she said the this character disappeared for too many chapters and mm. she pointed out stuff where chapters were where I was really taking sort of conceptual risks. She would be able to go through and say, this conceptual risk paid off. This one did not. Mm. If you want to try and keep this, here are a couple of suggestions. Sure. Otherwise, you know, try your own suggestion. And then in the end, she cared about it enough to do, you know, an entire line edit of the entire 106,000 words. So, no, no, she she put in a ton of work and yeah, she's she's an amazing agent. Wow. Mind you, yeah. you, you know, it's it's a great book. She's done the work that it deserves, I think. So it, it's it's excellent that 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 you found her and that she's she's done justice to to the work there. I wanted to just talk to you a little bit now about some aspects of the book. Having read it, I think you plunge the reader into some really very vivid setting with the minimum of description. Were you conscious of doing that? Do you think that's a fair comment? Uh, Yes, I do. And I am conscious of it. In science fiction, it goes way, way back, I think almost to the 30s, this rule, which is you don't have characters spend a whole lot of time thinking about the things that are very commonplace in their world, right? Mm. You and I, we don't pull out our cell phones and then muse on our cell phones and how they work for two minutes. And so in a story, if you know, somebody has a jetpack, you know, it would be inauthentic for that character who uses the jetpack every day to muse for two minutes on just his normal day about how wonderful it is to have a jetpack and, you know, here's how it works and stuff. So that's one thing. And I also like a very close third person point of view. And, And so I try to keep the narration almost exclusively to what the character will think about. And that's why in some of the different characters, you'll notice that the senses that they pay attention to in different scenes in their points of view are very different. And Mm, sometimes their language will be very different because I like that close 
third point of view. Now, given that I'm also working with some really extreme scientific concepts, sometimes you just have to out and out explain. And yeah, that yeah. hopefully to make it not look like an information dump, you know, you attach it to an emotional response or some sort of conflict. But hopefully it's a satisfying reading experience. I, I personally don't like being spoon fed. I like reading a novel where you know, there will be throwaway comments here and there that hint at more and that it's my job to sort of keep up or look up things if I feel interested enough mm. or if I'm not just, you know, keep on reading. It doesn't take away from the experience, no, but it hints no. at more. The style that you apply here, I think there's quite a sparse, direct style. And it, it reminded me of some of the cyberpunk work, the kind of cyberpunk classics like Neuromancer and stuff like that. Do you, I mean, did you think that's a, do you think that's a fair comparison? Do you see any of that in your work? I can't recall the style of Neuromancer. From what I remember, it's gritty, and I don't know if mine is, but if we're talking stylistically and uh, about sparseness, then I think what we may have identified is that I might have drank too much of the Strunken White Kool-Aid. Um, <laughs> you know that style book that English yeah, students see in yeah. university? Yeah. That's, it's, it's a, yeah, so I'm, I, I'm a big, big onboarder of omit needless words, delete adverbs to try sure. and make my verb stronger or yeah, delete yeah. adjectives so i make my noun stronger avoid the passive voice uh, except when it's used to vary pacing and sentence structure the the other thing is short fiction did teach me to be concise because my natural length of short fiction right now is about 10 to 14000 words which is a novelette yes but in the yes. beginning to break into markets some of them had maximums of 6k or 5k or even 4 and I recall I had one story, The Dog's Paw, which my final draft sort of thing was about 5,400 words, and yet the market I was selling to was maximum 4,000. Wow. So right. I remember going through that thing so many times, and every time <laughs> I could cut a single word was was a victory. And in the end, I got it down to 3,995 and said, okay, it's done. <laughs> but it that's a very useful teaching experience yes. to tell you what's important yeah. to keep and what's not. Because in a novel, you you can go on digressions, but in short fiction, you can't really. And no. maybe I spent a bit of too long writing uh, short fiction. Now, you've also talked in the past to me about writers groups that you've belonged to and probably still do belong to. Yeah. So at the back of the book, there are acknowledgments, first of all, to the East Block Irregulars, my writers group that has been correcting my work and allowing me to offer suggestions on their work for the last 10 years. We have different opinions. We have some people who are more literary, some people who are more horror, some people who are more fantastical, some people with full, you know, clarion training, some people who are, are like me, just grew up in the wilderness. And, you know, it's a punishing experience going through a critique. But if they are well-intentioned and I am well-intentioned, then that punishment is worth it. Yes. Because what comes out at the end is I have learned to do something because basically a critiquing group is a very educated, focused group of readers because they're not trying to rewrite my stuff, but they are telling me their perspective as readers and they're coming at it from also trying to hone their own writer skills. So it's amazing. I think of the, the group, maybe four of the nine read it. And okay. then I also went out to a few other people who aren't in my writer's group, and they also read it. And they're all in the acknowledgments at the back of the book. Sure, sure. What, was the, what for you was the most useful part, do you think, of, of sharing the book with these people? 
Well, the puppets had a slightly larger role at the beginning. Their, their subplot with Gander was a little bit bigger. And one of the great comments I got was the subplot of the puppets went too far into horror and it didn't fit tonally with the rest of the novel, which mm. was an amazing observation. Mm. And so I ended up removing, I think, one or two whole scenes with the puppets. Right. And then scaling back a bit. There were some other things about pacing, especially about tension in different spots. It, it was really good. It was really good. And I mean, each of each of the people gave different viewpoints. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's valuable for somebody to say, I'm really interested in what the scarecrow is doing. You know, where is he, where does he come from? Because he left me hanging. And then all of a sudden it points at something that could be of more interest to a reader. Mm. Now, in, within the book, you created l a number of very different, uh, they are extremely different settings, but you've created them with a bit of a sketch. You know, you know, you haven't, you haven't put a lot of information in for each of the different settings that you've created. So how, how do you do that? How do you create the different environments that your characters move and live and work in in, a, in as quick a way as possible? Um, so one of the things I got out of my university creative writing course was the world is sensuously apprehendable. So use all five senses. Mm. And mm. in the case of the aliens and human subspecies I created, they often have different primary senses than we do, or they have a, it, something is more important. And so, for example, in the case of Stills, mm. his world is dark and underwater. And so his subspecies of humanity is engineered with a keen sense of smell, but smell is not going to help you navigate underwater. And so that's why he also has electrical and magnetic senses, which is something that electric eels and electric fish use mm. to go around murky waters in rivers all over the world. Readers can explore his world also through smell like the rotten eggs, the ammonia, the cold, and even the hearing. Like one of the things that I wanted to do when he was when he was diving underneath the the puppet free city in the water there with the icebergs and the millions and millions of shards of ice you know thinking of how they would sound like chandelier crystals knocking against each other as mm -hmm. they floated through the water and and that's the sort of thing that gives him and others uh, uh you know, we all understand what something sounds like and we can all understand pressure on the you know, our, our, our ribs or something else. And we can all understand what it's dark and what rotten eggs sound like. And so I think it's a matter of picking a sense that works for the character and then at the same time works for the reader. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, and I guess for context, we should say that perhaps like all good heists, your cast are a very disparate bunch, aren't they? They're, they are extremely different people. And I use the term people in a fairly loose sense. Uh, and the guy that you're referring to, Stills, he, he exists underwater and, and in, in many ways deep, in a very deep place underwater. So you've kind of removed the sense of, of sight. You've removed all of the kind of sense, vision senses and experiences. And therefore you've, you've got to focus on all of the other experiences that he might, that might come to him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that was a lot of fun to do too. It is yeah. like one of the things you, that I also got out of the writing course was explore the places you don't know. And I'm sure my teacher meant something different, but <laughs> what I took away from it is if I want to imagine what it's like to live under 700 atmospheres of pressure underwater, that's a place I don't know. And I would love to explore that with my imagination and see what it turns into. And so hmm. it's, it's not at all an effortful process. It's a, it's a process that, that is rewarding and exciting and interesting to do and, and is part of the drafting process in the moment that, uh, 
keep, you know, if you write a big outline, you don't get bored because in the moment there's all this experiential stuff to think about too. Mm, yes. Yes. Stills and all his people were actually invented in my first Asimov story way back in 2007 or 2008. So I just imported them into this, sure. you know, a, a century or two after the, that story happened. The puppets, I knew I wanted something weird and alien in perspective and morality and everything else. And I like the name the puppets. It's very evocative. Mm. And so I invented, you know, what, why would they be called the puppets and what would that look like and, and who would be the people in charge of the puppets and, and what would they look like and so on. And so, yes, strategy, but yes, at the, alt- at the same time, there's a bit of narrative exigency to it in that, you know, I, I wanted to have a few things to keep me scientifically and dramatically interested. And mm. it, it so happens that, you know, what really floats my boat is, you know, interesting scientific projection of, of things. And, and in the end, all of the things I invented added a lot of drama or possibilities of drama for the writing process. Yeah, yeah. So there was also this sense, and I don't know whether whether this is just me reading this in as the reader, all of these characters, immensely powerful though they were in their own context, were quite broken people. If we think of them as people, they were quite, almost quite vulnerable, broken people. Now, was that, was were you aware of that? Do you think that's valid? Is, it, is that something that you were you kind of weaved into it or is that, is that just something that I've spotted or that works for me in the story? Do you think? So I think the wizard of Oz is a good story because every one of those four characters has something important and life changing that, that, that fills something that's missing in them from Mm. the beginning of the Mm. book to the end of the book or beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. Now I wasn't modeling the wizard of Oz, but I was applying the principles that characters have to start their growth somewhere. Yeah. One of the things that I I think is a regret of mine is that in the quantum magician, I was only able to explore. I only had so much room to explore characters to the depth I wanted in the following book, the quantum garden. I get to go deeper on a few others and also on Belisarius again. So I'm, you know, happy, happy about that. But I mean, you can only fit so much stuff in a book. I mean, three characters, maybe, unless you're making a really long book. (laughs) So we've got, we've got some of it. And I think there's the potential there isn't there for more in the future. Um, Let's talk about the puppets as well for a moment. The religious experience for that group of characters is is massive. I mean, it's, it's a very, it is, I think, quite a, a broken concept for them. It's a strange concept, but how did you go about tackling that? What did you want to achieve with the, with the religious experience of this group of characters in the book? So it's not a parody. I, I'm not, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody, any, any religion at all. I believe that religious experience is an important thing to humanity. You know, whether you're an atheist, whether you believe in this or that or the other thing, these are these are religious freedoms that every person can either explore or not explore. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to do with the puppets was find a way to make a slave species. And at the time, I'd been reading some scientific research that wasn't conclusive, but it's it's at least interesting that there are certain regions of the brain that can be associated with religious ecstasy. And ancient and modern peoples, for example, have used psychotropic drugs to access what they describe as religious experience. And if you could put a microcurrent of electricity to trigger religious awe at will, 
what would an unscrupulous genetic engineer do to create a slave species? Mm, mm. And then given these things, I tried to think of what it would be like to experience religious ecstasy in a reliable, empirical, everyday experience. I tried to think of you know their, their experience in terms of the slave society where every oppressive law and rule and order and punishment and humiliation was accompanied with religious – awe and ecstasy and and then i figured well if it, what would they do with this they they would they would have some of the same things as us they would do hagiography hey, they would do theology and i tried to imagine that the the puppets would start to write down everything their divine masters said and then start to make a bible a little bit like the christian bible in the early centuries after uh, after the new era that you know people argued about which gospel was was real and which mm. wasn't and this one's not consistent and you know the the puppets do that all the time so they and, and they are trying to i think in their own way they're trying to make sense they are trying to kind of contextualize what they're doing i think in in terms of yeah i understand that they're, they're trying to get to grips with it but this is their this is the way they are but it, what was interesting as well for me looking at it is that all of these characters we come back to the fact it's a heist novel and all of the parties involved have a slightly different purpose there's there's some, uh, some for some of them there's the element of money but by no means is that like a massive element of motivation for all of them they're not in it for the cash certainly certainly not all of them how how did you explore those different purposes in this book how did you and how do you think writers can explore purpose and motivation in their characters in in their work so to go back to the religious question, because I think mm. that relates to purpose. Sure. When when I was in university, I did my religious thinking and I came to the conclusion that I'm an atheist. But at the time, what that did for me was I realized that there were three questions that religion would normally answer that now I had to answer on my own. The first was, where does all this come from? The mm. second is, what happens after I die? And the third is, how should I act while I'm here? And okay. that third one is a lot to do with the purpose. That's what the puppets are trying to figure out. That's what St. Matthew's trying to figure out. That's mm. what Stills is trying to figure out. They're all circling and orbiting that question. And, you know, it can be framed in, in philosophical or spiritual terms. But in terms of how I explored it, I gave each of them sort of unlimited freedom to look at this purpose question by putting them outside the law by isolating them from family and friends and sometimes even from their communities. Hmm. And I gave them a terrible freedom to pick anything they wanted. And some of them pick things that are going to be good for them. And some of them don't pick things that are going to be good for them. It is, as you say, a terrible freedom that they have, isn't it? That they have, they're each given a, an opportunity to, to find purpose and they each try and find it as best they can in their own way. And inevitably because of massive differences in these characters they are united within a purpose in the book but they all go off in different directions in terms of what they're trying to achieve within themselves and for themselves and that, that to me is, is it's just an interesting dynamic that works there i want to come back now and just think about some of the lessons that you might have learned as a writer on this project so you've got quite a heritage in short stories now but here we've got this book that it, this is a novel it's it's a different kind of beast what did you learn with the novel that perhaps was a new lesson compared to the kind of things that you'd learned with the short stories so i think one of the things that is wildly wildly different between a short story and a novel is the pacing mm. um because there's a 
different breathing that happens with short stories, which only have to go for 6,000 words, sure. which, you know, is 30 minutes reading or with a novel, which is, you know, a few days, you know, or longer, depending on how you do. So I had largely structured the story chronologically at the beginning. And in fact, I wasn't, I had so much trouble with the beginning because I didn't know whether to start it with the first time that Belisarius goes to get some of his crew or to start it with him getting hired because those are two different things mm. and one of them is more exciting and fun than the other in the end i had to go over and over and over and over the beginning with my agent a lot before i think it it came into focus and even now i i think probably there i hope i it it comes off okay another thing is the the story structure i chose the heist it's it's a particular form. It comes with some expectations, and I yes. think those expectations have advantages and disadvantages. Yes. One of the big ones that, that did come up is there's a moment in every heist story or every good heist story where you have to begin to fool the audience. And that's, you know, at, at that point of the book, usually the audience can't be right inside somebody's head who's running the con and is about to fool the audience because you'd see it right away. Yeah, sure. And so I had to find ways of, of having the key characters not be out of sight, but for the reader not necessarily to be in their heads for what they were trying to do. Hmm. And and that was that was that was very challenging because, you know, this was the first time I'd done that where uh, a point of view character by the nature of the form has to be receded a bit. The last thing was just uh, that I learned on the novels was just making sure, as, as I mentioned before, to, to match the tones of the subplots. Because you can't have an adventure science fiction or hard SF or space opera with a horror subplot in it, right? I mean, there are some pretty horrific things about the puppets, but yeah. the tone has to match the rest of the book. Yes. And that, that yeah. took me a bit. And in the end, I think the other puppet stories I want to do, I may... I may write a bunch of puppet stories and, you know, either sell them to some horror magazine or even just put them out as a, a, a different kind of collection. Because mm. the what is most concerning with the puppets is how damaged they are because they are the product of a crime against humanity. But does that absolve them of the crimes against humanity that they are currently committing? So, so yeah, the, those three things, the pacing, the, the, the advantages of the and disadvantages of the form – and the the tone the the tonal consistency. So it sounds as if there was there was some disciplines within the the novel form and within the heist concept, which were both advantages and disadvantages. They provided you with benefits, but they also constrained the way in which you worked. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. And and I mean, I could have tried to depart more from the form of the the heist form, let's say. Yes. Yeah. But I felt that there were more advantages in sticking with the heist form than with trying to do like I was already spinning plates and juggling things and riding yeah. a unicycle, just trying to make the whole thing go. <laughs> And I didn't yeah. want to try and add in an extra loop-de-loop -loop or something. Yeah, yeah. I, and having read the book, I, I think I understand what you mean by that. Because there's a lot that you have to kind of, as the reader, if you're going to appreciate the book, there's a lot that you have to have spinning, a lot of plates to spin in your head as as this thing is moving along. And um, I, I, mean, I personally, I think you did the right thing to probably stick to the form. Uh, because I, I knew that I had certain expectations reading it, which... 
I was pleased to see fulfilled. So there was a point actually in the book where I thought, this can't be the con just on its own. There's going to be another, you know, there's going to be a con within a con or there's going to be some other layer to this. Um, I'm always thinking, <laughs> okay, author, I yeah. want to be duped. I want to be, you know, you've got to con me as well, the reader, as, as much as everybody else is being conned here. And uh, I think that is part of the form, isn't it? That's part of the way in which this, this thing works. So I, and, and as to the start of the book, I think, I think the start works. Um, I enjoyed the start. I thought it, oh, it well, was good. Thank you. I don't know whether it's surprising. It's interesting to hear you say that, that you really you struggled a bit with the start and how how the thing should should work. I mean, the only thing that that struck me from the start, which we, I picked up in an earlier question, was that I felt not uncomfortably so, but really into the story, into the into the environment, and presented with the characters pretty quickly. You know, it's kind of hit the ground running in terms of this is the context. Off we go. But I thought that was fine. The so, the start was actually the very last thing I wrote. Really. <laughs> Because we had to go through so many drafts. Yeah. No, I, I, I think. I th- and the start right. needed so much work. Yeah. There are lessons in all of this stuff for all of us as writers, isn't there? I think people should reflect not just on, on the story itself and go and read the story itself, but in terms of if you're a writer, you go away and think, okay, so how is that going to work? How are some of the things that Derek said going to work for my book? How do I tend to pacing? What's the form that I'm writing in? What's the tone? How do I balance characters coming in and out and, and that, the way the scenes are? So that's all kind of interesting stuff but i think i think perhaps in the first of a number of books i don't know how many of the the books are going to be in this series but you have to do a lot of heavy lifting anyway don't you to kind of introduce the world so maybe you've kind of invested in that now and then we can see more stuff in the future maybe i i don't know i assume that for well the the second book happens a week after the quantum magician ends so yeah i don't know how many readers will pick up the second and not the first but you know we'll see i mean it's still got to go through editing with with sure, my publisher of course yeah as a kind of you know hopeful thing to think about or a good thing to think about i think they're probably for the the first book in in a series anyway there's a whole bunch of stuff around getting as used to the universe the the tone of of the environment some of the characters, assuming some of them come back, there's, there's, you know, we're getting we're getting used to that space, and then we can we're much more able to just kind of get in get in the groove with it when you when the second book and perhaps subsequent ones come along. So uh, one of the questions I was going to ask, which I think you probably answered, you know, are there more novels to come? Perhaps you could tell us about these. You've mentioned one. Perhaps there may be more. What what can you tell us about where the whole thing is going to go now? Well, the second novel will come out in exactly one year. It's called The Quantum Garden. And as I said, it starts about a week after The Quantum Magician ends. And that one I would describe as a sort of back to the future meets uh, Pollen from a Future Harvest, which is a novella I wrote in 2014 that was in Asimov's, where mm. it, it's a different structure of story, but most of the main characters are still there. And I've, I've written a third novel as well, and okay. Solaris made an offer on it, and we're in negotiations now. Okay. It's called The House of Sticks, and it actually happens about... 250 years before the events in the uh, quantum magician okay and they happen in our solar system right so so this is not this is not like that series book three or anything this is this is a different same universe but different time zone and different characters i presume yeah exactly okay so we're coming to the end of our conversation now i just want to ask you if there was given all of your experience today and i think particularly you've got you've got a heritage now with short stories and you're building up a body of work in terms of novels what would your advice be to writers who want to they want to they want to 
break into commercial fiction. They want to they want to sell their work. What are the kind of two or three important things that you would be saying? Um, are you talking traditional publishing as opposed to self publishing? Yes, yes, I would. I'm. I think it, given okay. given your experience, I think specifically traditional publishing. Yeah. So the Quantum Magician is my sixth novel that I've written, and I mean that means there are five more that have are not published. Mm. At any time, I probably could have taken one of them and gone to a small press or whatever, and I, I might have been able to get a small press to publish them. That is also traditional publishing, but my dream was I wanted some kind of big fat check to come from my <laughs> book. I didn't want a small check. I wanted a big check. <laughs> Um, there should be three zeros at least after, you know, the number. Yeah. And and if we can get more zeros, wonderful. So it depends on what your goal is, first of all. I mean, if you'd be happy with small press and that, you know, they're putting out maybe a thousand copies and, and whatever, then there's a lot of openings. Mm. Uh, if you want to get into professional level stuff where there's a little more money, not a lot, but a little more, I think in science fiction and fantasy, short fiction taught me a lot, A, B, having a writer's group was indispensable and basically was an accelerant to my writing and mm. my my learning. Now, not all writer's groups are made the same. You know, if you make one and it's a bunch of people who don't write very much, it's not going to be as good as if you make a group where everybody writes a lot and agrees to meet once a month and, and so on. Finish, finish what you write. Like, don't just write four chapters and give one to a friend. Like, finish the whole thing because yeah. the beginning may not be the beginning anymore once you find the end. For me, my process, because I wanted to be with a professional publisher and I didn't want small press, again, this is my choice because sure. my life, that meant that I basically needed to get good enough that an agent would say, yes, I can sell this for big fat check, mm. right? And essentially when, so I asked about the sell through and I, you know, I have my advance and basically when you sell to a, a press that's, that's paying, you know, some amount of money, what they're saying is they're, they believe in your work enough that they are taking a risk on it hmm. because that's, in, they're investing in your work. You know, they're going to pay for cover. They're going to pay for distribution. They're paying for marketing. Yeah. They're sending their sales teams out to talk to distributors. They, you know, they're spending money aside from the advance because they, they think they can make money off of what you wrote. And that's a good place to be. So it takes being patient enough to get good enough to get an agent who can get you to a publisher. I had the patience and my patience lasted 30 years. And uh, by 20 years, I was already getting published in short fiction. But if you're not willing to wait for 20 or 30 years, well, hopefully you can learn faster than I can because I guess I'm a slow learner. But uh, it takes a long time to get to that level. And of course, there are always exceptions, but I don't happen to be one of them, so I can't speak to that. But I, I think also it's very important to go to conferences, to meet other writers, learn the industry, speak to agents and publishers. Don't don't be pitching them while you're talking to them. Just learn what their business is. And I think... yes. The very last thing I'd say about traditional publishing is there are a million blog posts and podcasts by a million professional writers and agents and publishers, and they're all available for free. There's no excuse for anybody not to understand the publishing industry. And if you don't and you're trying to get into it, it's kind of professional malpractice. I mean, <laughs> if you're going to get into 
traditional publishing, learn the business. It's not hard. You could listen to six or eight hours or whatever. I mean, if you're going to put thousands of hours into a book, spend the dozens of hours to at least learn what to do with it, you know, because yeah, yeah not understanding the business is not a way to help yourself. Oh, that's interesting. And, and as you said there, we're not making any value judgments about big traditional presses versus small presses versus self-publishing or any of that. I just, I just interested to hear about your route because I, I do talk of, and a lot of the episodes of the podcast, I've talked about self-publishing. I've talked to different people, but uh, this is the kind of traditional, as it were, approach. Yeah. So, and, and, and it's totally fair. All of them are good. You, everybody just needs to decide what they want, yeah. right? Because. Yeah. You know, as an atheist with my three questions, I know I'm only here for a short time. And so what do I want out of it? I've already answered that question myself, right? So Yeah, yeah, sure. So it's, I guess the, 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 one of the lessons out of this, perhaps it's a life lesson is, uh, work out what you want, work out what you want to do, work out where you want to spend your time and then, and really work hard at it once you've got that, once you've worked that out. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, Okay, so how do then people find out more about you, Derek? Where would they go? How do they find out about The Quantum Magician? How do they find out about the other work that you've produced? I'm very findable on Twitter, which is just my name with no space. So Derek Kunskun, you know, at Twitter. And that will lead to my website, which is just DerekKunskun.com. Again, no spaces. And I have on my website a place called My Fiction, where you can see what I've written in the past. And a number of my short stories are available as podcasts now. But as far as The Quantum Magician goes, it's available everywhere. Barnes & Noble, Chapters in Canada, Amazon in the US, indie bookstores. It's soon going to be available on Audible. Uh, in in the UK, you guys have water something? Waterstones. Is your chain? Yes. Yeah, that is one of the big Waterstones. Yeah, that's it. So, yeah, it's available there too. So, it's, it, it's everywhere. And, I mean, if people can't afford to buy it uh, but want to read it, just ask your library for it. And that, you know, it still counts as a sale. And then other, 10 yeah. other people will read it too, which is always great. Which is great, yeah. So, and as you just said in there amongst that lot there's a growing number of people that want to listen to a book and it's going to be out as an audio book soon in due course i guess they're already recording it they called me last month and did a check on the pronunciation of various things in the book and uh the researcher and i talked for about half an hour and yeah yeah it was great cool I, i also am an audio guy so i can't wait to hear it yeah, I mean, I, I, and me as well. Yeah, I, I do a lot of listening to audiobooks, so I, I think it's, it's great. I guess uh, potentially this is another, uh, uh, this is another advantage of going the traditional publishing route and, and having an agent and doing that whole deal. You, there are the resources there that people are, and people are prepared to invest in different media, aren't they? So it'll be an ebook, it'll be on paper, print, and it will be an audiobook. Yeah, and and for every different type of thing, I've been paid some money. The audiobook company pays us some money. The yes. French publisher pays us some money. The Chinese publisher. So I mean, it's not that I'm shelling out money to try no, no, and no. get it out. I'm not doing the distribution. I'm participating in the marketing, but really that's being led by the publisher. I'm I'm doing my best to help because obviously we're a team. But yeah. you know, there's a there's a marketing team behind this too. And and your agent, obviously, I presume your agent is the one who's negotiating the different rights for you. Yes, absolutely. Sure. Okay, excellent. So, Derek, it's been great again to talk to you. Really good to catch up, see what you're getting up to, and to talk about the book. Thank you so much, cool. Andy. You're very welcome. It's great to talk to you, and hopefully I'll talk to you again soon. Okay, that's wonderful. See you. Cheers, Cheers Derek. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com. <laughs>